But I do want to encourage you, if you have a Bible or if you have a screen that you can get a Bible passage up on, since we're not going to have it on the screen behind me, if you can go to Luke chapter 14, we're going to be looking at three instances of teaching that Jesus does in Luke chapter 14. And as we would look at these three things, usually when we talk about these three things, we talk about them individually. You know, usually, and John will probably attest to this, when we preach from this chapter, there's, a, there's thing number one, thing number two, and thing number three, and we usually don't preach them together. You know, we usually either are focusing on the first thing, or the second thing, or the third thing, as an individual thing, as a jumping off point for a lesson. And as a result of that, it's easy to miss the fact that these three things even though they're, they're more or less unrelated, two of them happen in the same circumstance, but the conversation is very different. But it's easy to miss the fact that Jesus has an underlying theme in each of the three lessons that he teaches in this particular chapter. Even though the maiden lesson might be different, he's got a thread that he's focusing on here. And it's an important one for us to see and to realize. So we're going to look through all three of these, these uh, lessons that Jesus presents in Luke chapter 14. But I want us not only to grasp the lesson we normally get out of each of these three things, but I want us to grasp the underlying thread that ties them all together. So let's read, the, let's read the first one. In Luke chapter 14, and I'll just begin reading at the, four, at the first verse, and we're going to read down to verse 14. Luke writes, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from an, abdom, from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And so taking hold of the man, Jesus healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now I just want to stop there and thank you uh, Nathaniel for getting, for getting that up on the screen so that, so that everyone could read it. Usually when we come to this part of Luke chapter 14 we're focusing on the lesson about working on the Sabbath day because this was the this was sort of the spur point that here's an individual who had an infirmity of the body and Jesus was going to take the opportunity to heal this individual. But he knew that was going to create a problem for the Pharisees because it was the Sabbath day. And Jesus, in doing an act of healing, was by their standard working on the Sabbath day. When nobody was supposed to work. And Jesus, having healed the man and sent him on his way, asked them a question. So well, what if you had a child that fell in a well on the Sabbath day? 
Or what if you had an ox that fell in a well or in a ditch on the Sabbath day? Would you not pull them out? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. They knew the answer to that, of course. You're not going to leave your child in the bottom of a well because it's the Sabbath day. You're not going to leave a valuable uh, piece of livestock in a well or in a ditch because it's the Sabbath day. You're going to pull them out. And so they didn't even respond to that. And of course, this goes back to a, a, a lesson that we, that we gave in this series some time ago. Looking in the, in the fifth chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes several points of the law and says, you've heard that it was written like this, but here's what I want you to understand about that. And you remember, we called that lesson, you know, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Because they often would draw a lesson from the law that was not really the lesson that they were intended to draw. The lesson that they often drew from the commandment remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, was that the Sabbath was more important than anything in terms of how you observed it. That the way you observed the Sabbath was your hallmark of faith and practice. How you observed the Sabbath demonstrated how religious you were. And what Jesus wanted them to understand was, yes, the Sabbath is important, but it's not important in and of itself. It's not more important than pulling your child out of a well. It's not more important than rescuing an animal that's fallen in a ditch. And it's not more important than bringing healing to a person who is suffering even though it's the Sabbath day. Yes, we remember and revere the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, but we don't do that at the expense of other things that serve God, like rescuing a child, or rescuing an animal, or healing someone who's suffering. So then in verse 7, Jesus continues says, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So while he's at this feast at the Pharisee's house, where he has healed this man who was suffering on the Sabbath day, Jesus takes note of the fact 
that as guests arrived, they jockeyed for position at the table. Everybody wanted to sit in the best place, the place that would bring them the greatest honor, the place closest to the head of the table where the host would be sitting. Because the closer you sat to the host, the more honor that people saw reflected toward you because of your proximity to the host. And Jesus tells them, don't do that. Because what if somebody who's more honorable than you comes in and the host makes you get up and move down? That would be humiliating. How much better it would be to take the seat at the far end of the table and possibly have the host come to you and say, oh no friend, you need to be over here in a place of greater honor. And then have people see that rather than see your shame at being moved out of a place of honor down toward the end because somebody else who is seen as being of greater honor has come in. And the real lesson, of course, that Jesus wanted them to understand is in that 11th verse, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, it might be easy for us to miss the fact that this point is tied to the previous one. You know, Jesus talked about their focus on the Sabbath being somewhat misplaced because they realized that there were things that really were more important than the Sabbath. Even though they didn't want to acknowledge that. And here, Jesus is going to the heart of why they placed such emphasis on the Sabbath. Because as we said... They, their focus on the Sabbath was really all about how do I get people to look at me? If people see me refraining from all activity on the Sabbath, they're going to look at me and say, wow, what a person of faith that is. What a religious individual that is who refrains from all activity on the Sabbath day. Keeping it holy to the Lord. Because it really wasn't about the Sabbath. It was really about their own pride. And so Jesus is continuing that theme. As he makes this observation about their seeking to get a good place at the table. Once again, it's all about their pride. And Jesus tells them. You know, the person who pursues his pride ultimately is going to be humiliated. It is the person who lays his pride aside who will be exalted. And that was a hard lesson for them to learn. And remember, as we always talk about, context is important. Where is he during this conversation? In the house of whom? A Pharisee. 
because the Pharisees, more than any other people in that society, wanted people to look at them and see them as holy people, as religious people, as people of faith. And what Jesus wanted them to understand is, it's not important how people look at you. What's important is who you are. And how you are on the inside. That's what matters. That's what God sees and judges. God is less interested in your practice of the intricacies of the Sabbath day. Than he is in your humility of heart. And again this is a lesson that these Pharisees needed to learn. And so it is that he continues talking now to the host of the feast, who, as we've observed, was a Pharisee. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now Jesus turns to this Pharisee and he says to him, you know, I see who you've invited. I'm looking around the room, I see who's sitting at your table. All of the people that are sitting at your table are people who could very easily provide their own dinner. All people who could invite you to dinner and not miss a beat. Instead, what you ought to be doing is sharing what you have with people that can't pay you back. With people that can't invite you to dinner with people that can't provide any benefit to you at all. That's what would make you a person of faith rather than what a stickler you are about the intricacies of the Sabbath day rules or the reputation that you have in the community for being a holy and religious and righteous individual. What would really make you stand out in the eyes of God is you doing things for people that can't do anything for you. Feeding the people that can't feed you back. Giving to those who can't give in return. If we tie all of these things together that Jesus has now said, his point about the Sabbath not being really the right focus, his point about not seeking honor for oneself, but rather in engaging in, in true humility, and in not giving to those who can give back, but rather 
seeking to give to those who can't. There's a thread through all of these things. And that thread is, there is a cost to being a servant of God. And that cost is not necessarily a material cost. Often it is the cost of our own pride, of our own will, of our own self-inflation. Often the cost we really need to pay to be servants of God is the cost of humility. The cost of a humbled spirit. The cost of laying aside those things that make us look important to the world. And the embracing of those things that humble us. There's a reason why he's teaching this lesson in the home of a Pharisee. Because Pharisees needed to learn that lesson. But I want to suggest to us, as people who are blessed to live in a, in, a, in a wealthy society, but who are often surrounded by people who don't benefit from the wealth of the society in which we live, that some of these same lessons need to be preached at our house, at my house. These are things we need to be reminded of. Because sometimes it's easy for us to become very involved in the intricacies of our faith. And making sure we're, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I in terms of the instructions we think we're supposed to follow. And what that really does sometimes Though that's not a bad thing to do in and of itself. But what that often serves to do is inflate our pride. Look at how much more righteous I am than the people who aren't doing the stuff I'm doing. When in fact Jesus says if you're exalting yourself, you're going to end up humbled. Rather humble yourself so that you can be exalted. And one of the ways that you can do that is not by honoring those who can honor you back. But rather by giving honor and aid to those who can't give you anything in return. Because there's no glory in that. Now notice thing number two that happens in this chapter. Beginning at verse 15. It says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. There's a dude that's missed the point. <laughs> but Jesus seizes on, on this thoughtless remark to say this, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, 
I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, well, I just got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. And then the master told his servant, go out onto the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. For I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Having just heard Jesus make remarks about not exalting oneself and seeking the humble rather than the highest place, this guest at the, at the feast proclaims what a blessing it would be to dine at the feast in the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus knows what he's really saying is, yeah, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be sitting at that table. Me and my buddies over here, these Pharisees, we'll all be sitting there. And Jesus tells this story about a man who is going to give a feast. But all of the people that he invited had reasons why they couldn't come. Everybody that he invited, they had too much going on. There was, there was one who had, had bought a field and one who bought oxen and one who would just gotten married. They all had things going on that were making them too busy to come to the feast. And you know when Jesus is telling this story, he's looking right at that guy who proclaimed, blessed is the one who will sit at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is really saying, but God's inviting you to a feast. And you've got too many reasons why you can't come. You've got too many other things going on in your life you have filled your life with so many things that you really can't come to the feast where God really wants you to be. Because you're not willing to give up the field and the oxen and the relationship entanglements and all of the things that are keeping you from coming to the feast. All of those things that are about you rather than are, are about God. Those are the things that are keeping you from coming to the feast. And so what you know what God is going to do? He's going to open the feast to those who really need and want to be there. 
to those who are truly hungering and thirsting for what's on his table. Not those who are already so rich that they can not only buy their own feast, but buy their own fields, buy their own oxen, and pay for their own weddings. Because those people already have the reward they want. God's going to invite the people who realize they are going to starve to death if they don't come and eat at his table. He's going to invite those who see their poverty so acutely that they know that their only hope of survival is to accept an invitation to come to the feast. And it's those... Jesus said, who will be fed rather than the ones who were first invited who had every reason why they couldn't come. Now we know there's, a, there's, a, there's an additional point that Jesus is making here. We know that he's making a point about those who were children of the law, that is to say those who were Israelite, who were the first invitees to the kingdom of God. And the fact that the kingdom would, have, would now be open to those who were not part of that first invitation. And yes, that's a valid point. And that is sort of the underlying secondary thing that Jesus wanted them to know. But I don't think that's his primary point here. I think his primary point here is a continuation of the point he'd made earlier. Which is to look at those Pharisees whose reward was in the exaltation they received from others as a result of their outward display of their faith. Wherein they missed the true benefits and glories of being servants of God, which are things that only come to those who humble themselves before God. So that he can exalt them. He wanted those Pharisees to understand. You're too busy focused on this feast. This literal feast. That's on this literal table. With this literal food. And with these literal people who are looking at you. As though you are the pinnacle of society because you are among those who are the most holy and righteous. And this is not the feast that God wants to provide for you. God doesn't really care anything about the food on this table. God has food to provide of a spiritual nature that you Pharisees will never eat. Because you're too busy feasting. And that feasting gives you too many other reasons not to come to the true table of God. Where the real feast is. And once again, 
Jesus is talking to Pharisees. But how much as readily could he be talking to us? How often do we let the things of our lives prevent us from truly coming to the feast? The spiritual feast that God offers through Christ. How happy are we to eat at the banquet table rather than coming to the Lord's table? That's a lesson that we can learn just as well as those Pharisees. But we have to be willing to put self aside in order to be able to do that. In order to truly come to the Lord's table, we need to put aside those things that glorify us and be willing to focus on those things that glorify God. And now look at the last point, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know, it's easy to focus on one word in that statement that Jesus makes, the word hate. But what Jesus is really saying is, if you love everything else that's in your life to the degree that you can't come and fully love me, then you can't come at all. If everything else in your life is more important to you than I am, I can't be important enough to be your savior. I can't be important enough to be your Lord. If anything else is between you and me, Jesus is saying, you can't really, truly follow me. You have to be willing to pay that price of surrendering those things. And we sing a song sometimes. I surrender all. Sometimes when I sing that song, I have to ask myself afterward, do I really? Did I mean that when I sang that? Or do I just surrender what's convenient? I surrender some. I surrender stuff that doesn't hurt. I surrender stuff that's not too painful. I surrender stuff that doesn't demand too much of me. But do I really surrender all? Or am I just singing words? Jesus continues, suppose one of you wanted to build a tower 
Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. On the Las Vegas Strip stands the tallest building in the state of Nevada. Now, when I say building, I mean actual building. Of course, the Stratosphere Tower, which is just north of the Strip, is the tallest structure in Nevada, but it's not considered a building. It's not occupiable all the way up. It's just three big posts with a thing on the top. But the tallest actual building in the state of Nevada is at the north, towards the north end of the Strip. You can't miss it. It's a big, huge, blue building. It's, the windows are all made out of blue glass. And it's called the Fountain Blue. The Fountain Blue was built in 2008. It was completed in 2008. And you might say, well, yeah, I've never heard about the Fountain Blue. I've heard of the, the Bellagio, and I've heard of the Wynn, and I've heard of the, the, the you know, Caesar's Palace and Circus Circus. And, but I, I'm, I don't remember ever hearing about the Fountain Blue. There's a reason you haven't. The Fountain Blue was finished in 2008 and has never been occupied. It is the tallest building in the state of Nevada, and it is a big, empty shell. Because you might remember, some of you, 2008, <laughs> what, what happened in 2008. The economy sort of took a hard left turn, and the people who built the Fountain Blue couldn't finish it. And because the economy was in the tank, had no real reason to. You couldn't fill the largest building in the state of Nevada because nobody really wanted to come and stay there for what it would have cost. So from 2008 until 2022, the largest building in the state of Nevada has stood at the north end of the Las Vegas Strip as a giant blue elephant. Usually you say white elephant, but the fountain blue is blue. Because somebody built a tower and couldn't finish it. And every time you go past that building, think, how stupid is that? There's this ginormous building. It's the tallest building in the state, a state that has, just on that one street, a lot of really tall buildings. But the tallest one of all is a big, empty shell. Because somebody built a tower and couldn't afford to finish. And Jesus is saying, don't do that with your life. Don't let your life be the fountain blue. Don't let your life be a tower that you start and aren't willing to pay the price to finish. And specifically, don't let your life of faith be a tower that you start without being willing to pay the price to finish.
Or suppose a king, verse 31, is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Before you build a tower, be sure you can finish. Before you go to battle, be sure you can fight. Be sure you're willing to pay the price to complete the job. Because if you start and you don't finish, you just look foolish. Salt is good, Jesus says. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Salt has one purpose, and that is to be salty. Unsalty salt isn't good for anything. What can you do with unsalty salt? But you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount of his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. If we are the salt of the earth, but we can't be salty, we have no purpose. If we are the salt of the earth, but we can't season the world the way we're supposed to, because we're withholding everything we could be giving, then what good are we? That's really the point that Jesus is making. So you notice that throughout this whole, this whole chapter, there's a thread. He talks about many things, but there's a thread. And the thread is there is a price that comes with being a servant of God. Following is not free. Sometimes we get confused about that because we, we read what well, says, you know, the gift of God is, is his free gift of grace. Yes, that's true. We can't buy God's grace. But that doesn't mean that there's not a cost to be paid for it. I've used this example before. If you have a child and you buy him a puppy, child didn't pay for the puppy, the puppy is free. But you expect the child to feed the puppy and clean up after the puppy and take the puppy for walks and play with the puppy and do all of the things that puppies need. The puppy is free, but the puppy is not without cost. Grace is the same way. Grace is free, but it is not without cost. 
If we want to sit like those Pharisees wanted to sit at the Lord's table, to sit at the feast in the kingdom of God, we have to be willing to pay the cost that comes with it. Yes, he's bought the feast. He's paid for the food with his own blood. But there's still a price for us if we want to sit at the table. And that is to be willing to sacrifice everything else in service to taking that seat. That was a hard lesson for the Pharisees. Whose entire identity was wrapped up in their evaluation of their own self-worth as perceived through the lens of other people seeing them as being holy and religious. But sometimes this is just as hard a lesson for us. Because we want people to think of us as not just good people, but as God's people. And sometimes we can be focused so much on all of the external things that make us look like God's people that we forget that on the inside we actually have to be God's people. Amen. And that means getting rid of those things that keep us from being fully and freely what God would have us to be. I'm not going to tell you that's easy. It's hard. It's hard every day. But that's our goal. If we want to be followers of Jesus, we have to realize following is not free. There's a cost to be paid every day. That cost sometimes comes in the form of reaching out to somebody that maybe I don't want to bother with. Giving a hand to somebody whose hands are not all that clean. Embracing someone who maybe smells a little. Doing things we don't necessarily want to do or that don't come easy or that don't necessarily bring us glory and honor. But the doing of those things is the doing of the things of Christ. And that's what makes us his disciples. This week, challenge yourself. If you know, people come to San Francisco and say, man, they've got a homeless problem in San Francisco. Come to Las Vegas. You think you have an, a problem here of unhoused people? Come to my city and let me show you around. It has been an eye-opener for me to see the number of people who live on the streets in the city where I now live. People who live on the street just outside my building where I live. And it's challenging. You know, we can't fix everything. But challenge yourself this week to maybe fix one thing. To do one thing 
that shows the light of Christ to someone else. Make one outreach. Take one hand. Give one gift. Do one thing that humbles you and exalts Christ. Because you're exalting someone who has been humbled by life. If you do that, you'll be understanding the message that it's not free to be a follower of Christ.